Hey everyone, John Dupuy here, and this is a conversation with spiritual teacher Thomas Hubel, an extraordinary man. And this was recorded before the pandemic, but it is even probably more pertinent today than when we first had the conversation. Please forgive audio sounds in the back. This was a live recording at a major conference with a lot of people around, but I think you're going to love it. This is very important. God bless you, and thanks for being here. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. If anybody doesn't recognize this gentleman next to me, this is Thomas Hubel. He is an Austrian spiritual teacher who currently lives in Tel Aviv. You probably know him if you're watching this, but he's probably one of the most, if not the most prominent spiritual teacher in Europe. That's, that's a big deal. And I met Thomas, I don't know, a decade ago, years ago when I was in, in Germany. The first time I, I, I went and saw uh, you speak, you were doing this vocalizing stuff that was like tremendous. And you're a very beautiful man. I mean, you look like what Jesus should look like if we were going to do a Jesus movie, you know, and you have a very gentle way of putting yourself out that is very attractive to people. And I was going, oh, this guy's going to get into big trouble because (laughs) based on my experiences with lots of spiritual teachers, and it's been a decade later and all the vibe says that you're a really good guy. And you live your life and, and, and do your work in integrity. And I just want to deeply honor that. And thank you for that. Oh, and, thank uh, you. Uh, and one of, one of the things that I, I've taken from your teaching that you lead with is the idea of the shadow and trauma mm-hmm. and all of this stuff. As we know from integral psychology that you can have very developed lines in, in terms of non-duality or spiritual experience, but still be an asshole. In other words, still have parts of yourself that you haven't processed or worked or dealt with. So it keeps that transmission from coming out in all its glory and twist it. And it comes out in all kinds of shadow ways. So, so make me talk about your, your emphasis on shadow. And, and the other thing that is so heroic is your collective trauma work. Mm-hmm. And you live in Tel Aviv and you're from Austria. I mean, obviously the connections. That is one of the most courageous, ballsy things I've ever seen mm-hmm. as far as a spiritual teacher grappling with and mm-hmm. incredibly necessary. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So first of all, thank you. Thank you all for this conversation. I, I think you said it because I, there's one thing that uh, I don't fully agree with when people say that people have non-dual awakenings and then they are an asshole. So, my senses in understanding shadow and trauma is that there are still parts that are actually not part of that non-dual awakening. Mm-hmm. So people enter states, as you said, but that which is excluded or shut unconscious stays excluded and shut unconscious. And so people enter these meditative high states without actually transforming that shadow material into that non-dual state. So there's still some separation that we are not aware of going on. And I think that's what you're referring to is getting acted out later. So it's not 
non-dual by definition if you haven't done the shadow work. That's right. Yeah, it's That's just right. still partial. Yeah, because it's not an embodied in the mystical traditions. We like the essence of the wisdom traditions. We look at like initiation or realization, but then the embodiment of it is if you're able to walk it. We are saying that the word, like in the Bible at the beginning, the word is creation. And if the word and the walking are not congruent, it's not non-dual. It's only non-dual if what I say and what the transmission is, is the same. The word is the energy. And so I think that makes trauma work and shadow work highly important and you can you cannot be in a non-dual state you you can have an awakening but not a, a kind of an actualization and an embodiment of that awakening and i think many spiritual teachers including all of us are basically more and more and more embodying that realization into our daily walking so so thomas if we were to try and pe- tease this out and bring as much precision as I know you love doing mm-hmm. to our discussion. It seems like you're actually covering several things. You're talking about an opening to states and you're talking about stabilization of that capacity and the development of specific capacity traits, stable traits of that right. ability. But you're also talking about an integrative process whereby those, the realizations that occur in certain states, state-specific insights, become integrated into one's belief system, worldview, morals, values, etc., etc. And that's a whole different and often long process. That's correct. And and also that it's like it look it's like the body is like a very sophisticated pipe system in the, in the energetic work. So in the moment we have this realization, it doesn't mean yet that. That the, that the energy of this realization can really embody itself. So there's a, I call of the mystics plumbers and electricians. So there's a lot of plumbing that we need to do in order to unstuck the pipes, that there's a congruence that the cells and the highest realization are actually not two. And it's not the removed state. And then I go back into my life and I have all kinds of crises and create all kinds of mess. That's not non-dual in my understanding. So the ethical upgrade is a necessity of the spiritual awakening. And if it's not happening, then there is somewhere some kind of, I don't know, layer that is unconscious that prevents them mm-hmm. from really going down all the way. And that, uh, like when you see the footsteps of Buddha and you say when the Buddha makes a step, you have a golden footstep. That actually means that the highest light is has a kind of a, a grounded or root chakra realization. And if that's not happening, it's not fully congruent yet in the vertical axis of the person. Yeah, and as yet, we don't have a really good vocabulary for this in the that's contemplative right. world. In the psychotherapeutic world, there are some, some concepts that are applicable, and I think very, very similar. One could have valuable insights in the consulting room, but then a couple of challenges. One is to stabilize them so that they are more available and that recurrent is not just a one-time event. Second is generalization so that those insights generalize in their behavior out into outside the consulting room into daily life. And those two processes are in addition to any initial insight. That's right. 
And that's why we discern in our work, we say, okay, there's state practice through contemplative practices, prayer, meditation, contemplation. So there are and on group practice and chanting or whatever. There are many practices. But then there is process awareness. And process awareness is really a refined practice. So to see all the incongruencies that the unconscious or traumatized field in us and in our society creates, that's a lot of awareness because that's a never-ending journey. So because that's why a mature practitioner is the one that stopped asking how long it's going to take. <laughs> you know, that when we, are, when we are really walking without trying to find out where is the end, which I often say is the forward projection of our mortality, mm-hmm. and we project our death onto the divine and say, where is the end of my journey? But there is no end, really. And so the karma that has been, that led up to this life and to all the conditions of our time right now, they cannot be evaded. So it, mm. it needs to be integrated. Yeah. And Tibetan Buddhism has a very valuable contribution here because it distinguishes between three developmental maps on the spiritual path. The first one is from an, an map is from an initial turning towards spiritual contemplative practice. And it culminates at the kind of states, states or openings that that are mo- what get most of the attention in our culture and the world. Mm-hmm. But then they start a, a whole second map, which is the stabilization of those states That's right. and the integration into personality until the realization is a continuous 24-hour-a-day waking, sleeping, non-dream, sleep, continu- continuity of awareness. But then they go to a third map, Beyond that, even after 24-hour day, continuous awareness, unbroken love, etc., then the third map to Buddhahood is one of ongoing purification. Mm-hmm. And our culture doesn't have those second and third maps yet, mm-hmm. but they're very valuable. Additions. Very important. That sounds very lovely. I think that's exactly what we were talking about. Yeah, exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful. And Thomas, you mentioned yesterday in your talk Someone asked about your daily practice and talk about at the end of the day, that even in a 24-hour period, things can build up, the unconscious or impressions or something that you can't even remember that have to, to be cleared out and have to be released. And it sounds exactly like what right. And that's why I'm saying about. often when, when, when snowflakes drop into water, they become the river. But when snowflakes drop onto ice or fall onto ice, they pile up. So when there, whenever I have a difficult moment... It means that there's not an external issue. I am not able to fully process and relate to that situation. Let's say we have a difficult conversation, but what is actually difficult mean in my emotional, physical, mental experience? If I leave that difficult moment and I feel disturbed and then I don't really come back to it at the end of my day and I really look what happened with John here, so if I commit to a spiritual path, a contemplative path, then me really com- making a commitment, at least one of those difficult moments, if I had one that day, I will sit in the evening at least five minutes or ten minutes and look for myself what was the experience that I couldn't process. Because otherwise, my nervous system kind of gets more and more piled up or filled up with stuff. And then I feel more and more stressed and I have less and less digestion time. And I think digesting experience in our fast-paced world 
is an issue because many people say, I don't have time, but I don't think it's a matter of time. It's a matter of trauma. Time is always short in the traumatization. When we are traumatized, we often say, I don't have time space because trauma is a collapse of time space. And whenever things get tight, it looks like we don't have enough time. And that's why I think we have to consciously commit to the cleaning up of our 24-hour period and then of our longer lifetime and of our childhood and our transgenerational and collective human past. Because if we don't commit to it, it will run me. Yeah. Or I will make space to clear it more and more as I can. But without commitment, it will simply run my day. Like it's if I don't take and then I recreate the same difficulties periodically. And if I don't take care why I have similar arguments with my wife, in my marriage, with my kids, with my colleagues, I will just keep on doing the same thing. And then actually tomorrow is my past, not my future. Because tomorrow I recreate the road. Like I often say, I take the road from behind me. You take the highway and you put it in front of yourself and you drive on the same highway that you drove already. So you're actually driving into the past, not into the future. And I think that's why that's so important. Yeah. Right? yeah. And with practice, I imagine you become more efficient. You get better at recognizing the disturbances in your psyche or the stuff that comes up. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You become better because you practice it more. You become more resourced. And then you also know if I have no clue why I ran into this difficulty with you or what happened for me, then my response ability, like my ability to respond to the difficulty is that I go to you and I look for your help to help me clarify what happened here. If I don't do it, I'm not a serious practitioner. Then I practice when it's easy and when it fits into my life. And like, but I'm not making my practice the core. And it doesn't matter if it fits to my life or not. No, but that's not. If the practice has the highest priority, or in the in the Jewish tradition, it says that Israel is not a country. Israel is is the straight way to God. So it means that I make the divine awakening my highest priority. And people who are observant Jews, they, for example, keep Shabbat. It's like the contemplative day. And there is not a question for an observant Jew to say, oh, this weekend it fits, but next weekend I, have a, I want to see friends. Nobody would ever say that. You know, you build your life around Shabbat. That's just a, a, a contemplative day you keep. And in the Western spirituality, we still like an accessory in my life. I do a sort of contemplative practice when it suits me. But if I'm not committing to something serious, life, my conditions will always take over my practice. And that's why if I'm committed that I go to you, if I cannot clarify myself, first I do it myself. Yeah. And if not, then I look for a mentor, a therapist, a, a guide, a friend to have a conversation. What happened with our relation? And I don't go and talk badly about you behind your back. Mm -hmm but I go to clarify my stuff with you. And if we do it, we actually clear our relational network more and more so that my external environment starts to reflect my internal practice so that my internal practice is visible around me. And when people say, how far am I on my path? I say, look at your life. 
<laughs> if your life is a mess, you're, you're not far on your path because you're not able to make a congruent manifestation of your internal state around you. So when outside and inside are very disconnected, so that's the basic function of trauma. So I hear you saying also that you feel it's essential that when you're dealing with shadow issues, that your practice include working with somebody outside yourself. Oh, yeah. For sure. Relational. And that's why I believe that it's good for people, for many, like to, to, for us to read self-help books and what, what we can do on our own by ourselves. But I think ultimately every serious shadow and trauma work is relational because many of the things that we learned, like psychotherapy knows that uh, there are a lot of this stuff is relational. Actually, many traumatized people try to do it on their own because if relation hurt me, I don't want to go back to it. I'd rather find out from a book how I can help myself. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't want to go back to what's challenging me. That's really trusting you. That's really opening myself. Scary up. stuff. Yeah, yeah, scary stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, as a typical male, tend to withdraw into my cave to handle stuff. And my wife cut out a cartoon from of a, of a couple and the woman, man saying, I'm not denying I have relationship problems. I just want to work on them by myself. You know, there's so much in what you, what you said. I just want to make sure we draw out some of the general principles. One was that the clearing of our body minds is not just a one-time process. It's ongoing life process. And there's an accumulation of unmetabolized experience which is really important to recognize, acknowledge, and work with, preferably as soon as possible. In what, and you point out, in whatever way is most skillful, perhaps internally if we can do it, but sometimes we can't. We need, so sometimes it involves relationships, sometimes it involves therapy and other things. So, so that was a really important point. And you also implied that unmetabolized experience, whatever we haven't fully experienced, Runs our life. That's right. That's right. And that's a big that's statement. Right. That's right. And you also talked about the big difference that comes with levels of commitment to practice, how sinful we make our spiritual practice, which raises the key question, I think, for all of us. You know, I think everyone here is a dedicated practitioner. Uh, well, probably a lot of our listeners are, and yet all of us, it's an ongoing challenge to, to yeah, so to stay as committed as as possible. Can you speak to how we can foster that? Yeah, community. I okay. think for us, because, you know, we are not sit, sitting in a Tibetan cave where your master comes at a, every few weeks and or a month and visits you and gives you a new assignment and the rest of your time you're just practicing kind of in the mountains. But more, like once we are listening to this or sitting here, we are in culture, we are passionate about contributing to culture. And culture is, reality is a construct that is built out of many, many conditions. Some of them we are aware of. That's why we, there is emergence, like there is new stuff possible. Some of it are trauma structures. It's actually many bricks of the house are frozen ice. And trauma is destiny. The stuff that I'm not aware of will run my life. And it's like a highway without any exit. Do I know why I look now over to you and not over to you? 
what steers my awareness? What, what are the fears that come up that manipulate my decisions? Give me the feeling of not being present, giving like recurrent patterns that I create. So there are many things that I create unconsciously, and then this stuff runs me. And so I'm participating in unconscious activities that I see as my life, and then there are relationships built on it, jobs built on it, social structures that are built out of this ice. And that's why I feel the, that there's a commitment that I can give. And then there is the commitment that I get through being surrounded by people. Like a sangha or a community means an externalization of my intention. Mm-hmm. So I have people that are also committed. And sometimes we are very strong with our practice, but sometimes we are running into challenges. And there are two kinds of challenges in the wisdom traditions that are very interesting. One is when it gets really dark, and then I start complaining about life, about God, about everything. Why do I need to suffer? So that's where I might abandon my practice. And the other one where I might abandon my practice, if life gets really good, suddenly I fall in love, or I have a great relation, I have a new job, I earn a lot of money, and my life really gets better. You know, in the traditions we say when we go out of the fire, when I have really issues, I look for answers. But when my life is really good, then there is a high tendency that I start enjoying my life, which Mm -hmm. is good, but not when I abandon my practice. And there are, this, there are some kind of traps in the, on the way. But if I have community, you will remind me, say, Thomas, what's, what's going on? Where, where are you? Mm-hmm. And, and I think we hold each other accountable. And we, we, we pull each other back in when it's needed. And I think that's a good thing, that my external environment becomes congruent with my internal intention. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if we have that, then on communities are also that through your reflection, if I have an issue and I come to you and you give me a reflection and I take something from my own practice or my own healing or my own inspiration, so the peer-to-peer and and also my relation to a mentor, to a teacher, to a therapist, if I have that in place, so I have a great support system. And I think that's what we are all into in one way or the other. Yeah. You know, I, I'm really glad to hear you talking about the importance of Sangha, spiritual community, uh, peer groups. You know, I, I spent three years writing a book, Essential Spirituality and Seven Central Practices. I was trying to really find out what are the great minds of history said about what are the qualities we need to develop and how do we do it. And what blew me away was that for every single spiritual quality, for every single tradition said, if you want to develop this capacity, hang out with people who have it. Oh, yeah, right. That's it. That's it. it. Consciousness is catchy. Yeah, that's (laughs) it. And people who embody certain qualities, then these are the people that have the transmission I can drink from. And I think this is also another thing we are so bruised from power hierarchies. So power hierarchies ruled humanity for thousands of years. So then we tried to push away hierarchies at all. We're just all equal. But in many, like when you're a professional psychiatrist, let's say, and somebody needs help, you don't want somebody that read a book about psychiatry, a self-help book, to help the person. You want the person to end up in your clinic. and Or a surgeon. Somebody who found a knife in the morning is not supposed to do surgery. You know, you go to a surgeon that does it every day. And so there are competence hierarchies that we can learn to bow down to without becoming regressive, without yeah. becoming... A child, I can be a grown-up person honoring your and your and your 
competence that is different than mine. So we can learn from each other, and I think that's... Yeah, I really want to draw out the principles of what you're saying because they're so important and they're so current. You just described the evolution of our kind of cultural relationship to hierarchy, which was one of worship and elevation, and it was a power inequality, which was sometimes very dysfunctional. And as you said, then as a culture and as spiritual groups, we tend to throw out hierarchy, don't need it. But there are multiple kinds of hierarchies. And you talk to a skill hierarchy. There are hierarchies of of development, of maturity, of wisdom, of insight, of of capacity. And we really need to honor those. Yeah, exactly. And it can be fluid, too, in relationships. Like in in I Awake, you know, I have this great group that I work with, but... In different projects, other people, some people are going to be in charge of it, and I'm, you know, listening to you, or you're, you're the senior person there. And I wanted to bring you into this, Doug, because our relationship started when we started talking, and we found we both had, a, we both been suffering, and we both had a commitment to practice. practice. So how, how is, how is this? Uh, what Thomas and and uh, we're talking about here? Well, my uh, my life has absolutely been centered on practice and learning the techniques to cultivate the awareness of what's going on inside me to explore this shadow. I have worked on transforming these things in ways that I can, but I'm very interested in particularly hearing from you, Thomas, what are some of the go-to most valuable ways that we can engage with some of this to discover in dialogue and looking within ourselves and then proceed to transmute, transform, work with, learn from, and integrate what we've discovered inside us in an ongoing and meaningful way. Mm-hmm. I think like a, a very simple but very powerful, like there are two, two elements to it. One is that I learn to listen, to witness, and to just be where I am. And that's super, it sounds so simple, but it's actually super complex. So to have a practice for just 10 minutes, half an hour, an hour, as much as I'm willing to to invest, I, I learn to just be and listen, and listen to body sensations, emotional sensations, mental movements, environment perceptions, and I, and I learn to be. And it's so hard because when I just am, <laughs> then, like, I create space-time, and then my nervous system thinks, oh, Great, Thomas is quite, he doesn't put so much stuff in. So now the stuff will come out. <laughs> and that's why so many people divert to addictions or to entertainment or just not anything else but sitting. Mm-hmm. Because, and if, if I'm stressed, then sitting is a torture at the beginning. You know, if I'm used to be all the time on the internet, on the phone, on and on and then I sit down, then my, all oh, my nervous system will torture me because mm-hmm. And then I will just read another news feed instead of just being. So one is is cultivating a sense of being and listening and to let this detox process happen until my nervous system finds a better regulation between activity and relaxation. And so that's a challenging process for many people. I mean, if you did it for some time, so then it becomes easy. And then actually you start enjoying it. And then there's a moment when you cannot think your life without it. But And, and then there's another one that is very simple. 
but very powerful. So trauma is a fragmentation in our nervous system, like the trauma response means that when I experience something overwhelming, I can shut down part of my nervous system. One part goes into stress and the overwhelms getting shut down, numbed and put unconscious. And so when, when that happens, my body, my emotions and my mind are not congruent anymore. So that's why we live in a world where we can talk about stuff without being able to live it. Because my mind can think about things, but my emotions and my body are not able to do it. So I can learn a lot about childhood development, but be very traumatized myself. Because that knowledge doesn't go all the way down here. So when I just pay attention in myself and in others, where is that congruency and coherence between the mental the emotional and the physical expression and where it's not. And when it's not, we notice it. We notice it in ourselves that I say things that I don't feel, I feel numb, dissociated, I'm trying to argue, but actually I'm already disconnected inside. Mm -hmm. I try to be right when I actually don't feel. And so I'm, so to pay attention to that and then having the difficult conversation with you is me meeting that fragmentation. So when I want to clarify why we got into an argument, I go inside and I replay it in myself and I make this fragmentation more visible. And then maybe the last thing is, and that's why I'm so passionate about collective trauma, and I wrote also a book about it now, because we did a lot of work on the Holocaust. We started with the Holocaust yes. past, and then we took it to racism in the US and to different dictatorships or war zones around the world. And then it got so clear to me that all of us have been born into a more or less traumatized world. So my parents had trauma, my teachers had trauma, my in the society many things are based on trauma. So I don't know, my nervous system doesn't know the world without trauma. And I believe nobody really knows how it is. We all know, we, we call that normal. But as a physician, like you know that if somebody is hurt, like, let's say I run around with a big wound here and I don't know that I am wounded. So I will keep on doing things. And then I wonder why I have a huge inflammation in my whole body. But if I know that I'm wounded, I can go to a physician, take care of my wound, get it uh, taken care of and then continue my life. So if I, if we don't know that we are living in a world where many people that I learned from had this kind of physical, emotional and mental split. So I know the world only through broken glass, like if the window was broken. And so we all need to create ways and practices and communities where more and more we listen to the cracks and the fragmentation in the glass and we heal together because together we all we don't look through the same cracks, all of us. Mm -hmm. So we can help each other to heal the broken glass because my trauma will reduce my perception of you. I no. cannot see you fully. And then people say, oh, you are like this and that. How do you know? You don't even know what you are not seeing. So how mm -hmm. can you be so sure that the other person, your partner, your wife, your child is that way? That the person is only that way in you, first of all. And if I know this, then first of all, I become more humble. I listen more. I look more at what's disturbing me than how you it's your fault that I feel discomfort. And if we can, these are all practices, I believe, to heal 
the kind of broken glass of reality. And so that's why I think collected to know that we are sitting in, a, in thousands and thousands of years of trauma and healing. Today is some resilience. That's what we call self-healing of the body. But then there we also have hurt. And I think we are all responsible to clean up humanity's past. And then there is the ethical correction that every trauma healing, I believe, needs to result in, in an ethical upgrade. We have to become better people. Wow. And uh, I think if I heal trauma, I go to the root that created the trauma. And this means I come more in alignment with life. And I think that's, that's our practice, how to walk this path for however long it takes forever to heal that broken reality. Thomas, let me, let me ask you about, about your work with collective trauma. And when I was in, one time I was in Berlin, I don't know, some years ago, I read an article where you had gotten a former concentration camp guard and a former concentration camp victim and we're doing some kind of collective trauma work and i just i i think i wept when i read the article it's like oh my god that is incredibly courageous i would just like to hear about your work and what is it just working on the people that are in the room and witnessing it or do you feel you're tapping into some kind of larger field yeah, of yeah. human experience yeah. so yeah, yeah. First of all, it started to happen in my groups in Europe that we saw this eruption. So 50 people at once started to cry and they saw like horrible images from the Holocaust, internal images and stuff. And then it happened over and over again, just with different people, the same process. And, um, and then we created intentional events. And I think it's what you're saying. If there's a group of people, some, let's say 500 people in a room, and we create an intentional coherence, which means a relational coherence, safety, and, and presence, and different ingredients. So then the field in the room is able to mirror the unseen dimension that is stored in the cultural unconscious. So that's why I often say, underneath our cities, we have dark lakes. And those dark lakes, they stay there, they are denied, suppressed, and it needs special conditions. Either they run our society unconsciously, or we consciously create community. And if the relational field is like many viewpoints, creating kind of a, a complexity that can, like the pixels on your laptop, and we become the pixels that display the undigested past. So there is a field, so Germany, 1943, is alive in our nervous systems, like everything that hadn't been, hasn't been integrated, is still living in our nervous systems, and we have the capacity to, to learn to tap into that information collectively, and then it starts to appear in the room. And if people are intentional and people have a certain skill set and it's a guided process, and we did it with like 40 therapists and thousand people in, in Germany with a video conference between Germany and Israel. Wow. And many people came. People felt, yes, this needs to happen. That's the future, I believe, of healing that we go into. Collectively synchronized fields that have the power to take a chunk of that collective unconscious, bring it up, process it, and integrate it into the flow of the potential of 
the culture. And I believe that the suppressed material always brings back 200% of energy. The frozenness and the energy that the fridge needs to keep it frozen. Mm -hmm. So it's had 200% energy that come back into potential, like human potential. And so that's in a, it's a shortcut of a much longer. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if it was that time when I saw you when I was in Berlin, but I was meditating. Uh, Nadja Lin, she's one of our creates, helps us with I Awake and works with us. I was at her apartment and I started meditating. And I, in the exact words that you said, I felt like I fell into this huge underground reservoir under Berlin of tremendous pain and horror and suffering. And I was, I don't know, I must have meditated an hour and a half, it was there a long time. And I was just like, oh, yeah. And and when it was over, I mean, Helmut and Nadja, their friends, they could tell something had been going on. And I felt empty, okay, just like completely drained, but not in a, you know, a vampiric, awful way, but just like emptiness and clarity and humility and awed, frankly, by, by the experience. And it sounds exactly like what you're talking yeah. about, the work that you're yeah. doing. Yeah, and I think also in, in our society, many people that are, I don't know, are traumatized, had a difficult childhood, had uh, like certain circumstances in their life, or are very sensitive, they are very easily affected by that. And maybe some of them end up in psychiatries or they end up in difficulties or with addictions. And But actually that that field lives in us it's not out there somewhere it's like as you said when you sit and you really focus you can tap into this stuff either voluntarily or that stuff starts tapping into you and i think many mm. people don't know how to navigate when that happens to them and then they look like crazy or this you know there are many many things how that affects us anyway all the time or then somebody takes a gun and then goes into a school and shoots yeah. around but that we are all part of that person going, even if we cannot say it's just a crazy person that did that. Like our culture has many, many unconscious and unseen rivers that lead up to such eruptions of them. Yeah. And I think we need to take more cultural responsibility for the stuff that happens here. Yeah, so as I listen, there's so much in what you're saying, and I'm trying to pull out some of the principles. But it seems like the, the, the core theme of what you're describing is first that unmetabolized experience of any kind runs our lives. And that that unmetabolized experience can be either from personal experience or it can be part of the collective cultural experience, which somehow, and we haven't talked mechanisms, uh, and maybe we don't need to understand the mechanism, but somehow that becomes a part of, part of us that each of us in a way is called to open to and metabolize our um, aspect or part of that collective suffering. And it seems like you're suggesting that that is really a crucial necessity for all of us, individually right. and collectively. That's right. Because I believe that in our bodies, the first time I flew into Kathmandu, because we brought meditation groups to the Himalayas. So I sat on the plane and I looked down and I saw the city at night with all the veins of light and so on. And then there were the dark spots where they turn off the electricity, the power, you know, because they don't have enough money for the for the electricity. And and I sit on the plane and I thought, wow, I can't tell if that's a part of the city, 
which there is a lake, a forest, a mountain. And then I thought, well, what a genius explanation for the unconscious. Like that stuff is happening. If that's a part of the city, then people are living there. They are doing what they are doing in their houses with candlelights. But me, from the plain perspective, like the, the sense of self that is aware of stuff that's going on, is not aware that in those parts of my city, processes are happening that I am not aware of. Since I believe that we are kind of sculptures in a transpersonal nervous system, because my nervous system is hundreds of thousands of years old. It's not just my age. If the complexity of my nervous system is much older than I am, I'm just living in it as <laughs> Thomas or every one of us. And so there is this personal part of our nervous system, but there is the collective dimension of humanity's past. And I believe that creates parts of where I feel myself, but parts where I'm not aware of what's happening in me. Mm -hmm. So that collective dimension has effects on our health and on our ways of creating societies that we are not aware of when we don't feel them. That's why we have to do this collective integration work. I believe in order also to track and understand some medical issues that we are really struggling getting our, our understanding around and, and finding solutions. And I think that there are very persistent issues in our healthcare system and our health that I believe we will only understand when we explore that collective dimension more, that that's going to give us, and this doesn't disregard the personal work that's needed and the therapy work, but I think there's another door that opens after whatever, 150 years of Freud and everything that came after but now there is a new threshold, I believe, and we will take care of stuff in in the larger we spaces that are defined, that are safe, that are professional, and where we do some collective healing work while we are doing still the personal work. If you've had your mind blown and your heart blown open by our conversation with Thomas, please stay tuned for part two. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.